When Amy was eight, she made her grandmother a birthday card. Dear Grandma Avon, you are fifty. Fifty, fifty, fifty. Twenty-five plus twenty-five equals fifty. You are fifty. Ten plus ten plus ten plus ten plus ten equals fifty. You are fifty. Happy birthday, Grandma Avon. Love, Amy. That's Amy demonstrating her arithmetic skills in a birthday card. I'm Dan Meisner, and this this is grown-ups read things they wrote as kids. How are you doing? It is very, very nice to see you. This is a show where we go back in time to remember the good, the bad, and the awkward parts of growing up. This time, recorded live in Peterborough, Ontario, we have a letter to the Prime Minister. Terrifying horror stories from grade three, a teenage crush that takes place mostly over MSN, and much more. This stuff is weird, it is wonderful, and by looking back, it can help us understand who we are today. So think about who you were when you were a kid, and stick around. One of my favorite types of kid writing is correspondence. At our Peterborough show, James brought along two letters he wrote when he was a kid. The first was written when James was seven, and it was written to Joe Clark, who was Prime Minister of Canada at the time. The second letter is a letter James wrote when he was 12 to his mother's bosses. Please welcome James to the Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote As Kids stage. May 25th, 1979. Dear Mr. Clark, how is it being the Prime Minister? Have you thought of changing anything that Mr. Trudeau changed? Have you ever been the Prime Minister before? I made a page in school called, If I Was Prime Minister of Canada. This is what I said. I would have lots of rules. I would say for everybody to share the food and money with the poor people. I would demand no smoking. (laughs) If somebody does so, I would have the strongest man in the world to hit him across the bum. (laughs) I I would tell the builders to break down some playgrounds and build more houses. My mother and father voted for John Gamble, from James Giesebrook. (laughs) So this one needs just a little bit of context. My mother was a manager at a bank branch, and every year the inspectors would come and do their financial audit, make sure everything was okay. Uh, This year they happened to do it right before Christmas, and I had a few thoughts on that. (laughs) December 20th, 1983 to the inspectors. I am very mad at you. I can't understand why you insist on coming to inspect at the bank when it's Christmas time. I mean, parents should be able to take time off at this time so they can be with their kids, and then you guys come along and waste the entire week right before Christmas to say, fine, 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 etc. 
think about it, an entire week just to see how a bank was doing, even though you knew it was probably doing fine already. I mean, you could have done this two weeks before Christmas, but no. You guys had to pick, pick the week where my mom and probably many other parents were planning to take a few days off to share the Christmas spirit with their kids. Now, don't you feel like a real meanie that you've ruined a kid's Christmas? I realize that it is possible that you guys did not come to the bank on your own and that someone might have told you guys to come. If that is the case, please give this letter to the person responsible for this act of stupidity. Yours in anger, James Giesebrook. P.S. I trust that you people are smart enough and kind enough not to do this thing again. And remember, I'm counting on you. Another P.S. This is no joke. James Giesebrook. When Lisa was in grade six, her teacher gave the class an assignment. Everybody had to write a short story imagining what their life would be like in the future. My future. I woke up one morning and it was the year 2010. I was 28 years old. My house was huge. I had a husband and two kids. Good morning, mom, my identical twin girls, Valerie and Veronica said. Good morning, I said back. We all sat down to eat breakfast and then left for school and work. Bye, we all said to each other. I got into my limo and my driver, Ed, took me to work. I was an interior designer and I was currently working on redesigning a house in Bel Air. Meanwhile, my husband was in court as he was a very successful lawyer working on a case for O.J. Simpson's son. (laughs) Your Honor, my client, O.J. Jr., did not murder his ex-wife like his father did. (laughs) (laughs) On my lunch hour, I went out for lunch with my best friend, Katie. She was a teacher at St. Catherine's School. Over lunch, we talked about the things we did when we were younger and how we thought our futures would turn out, and they were nothing like they are now. (laughs) The teacher noted, Good opening and closing. However, Bel Air is not close to here. Did you fly to meet Katie for lunch? (laughs) Thank you. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. So in grade six, you predicted you would be an interior designer, correct? Yeah, I guess I did. And you're at work right now? I'm at work right now. What do you do for a living? Um, I'm an interior designer. (laughs) 
So just uh, want to check up on a couple of your other predictions. Have you done any work in Bel Air? No work in Bel Air. Although, you know, I think my teacher wasn't very forward thinking because the internet has happened and I could do work in Bel Air. <laughs> what about the identical twin girls, Valerie and Veronica? No kids. <laughs> no kids. And my husband's a photographer. <laughs> <laughs> so your predictive powers, uh, strong, but maybe not perfect. Not perfect. No. <laughs> Thanks again for reading at the show. It was awesome. We had the best time. Teenage romance is often full of fear and uncertainty and doubt. It's all about feeling a certain way about a certain person and then second-guessing your feelings and then second-guessing your second guesses. When our next reader, Melanie, was 16, she had a crush on a guy named Josh, and she chronicled that crush in her journal. Uh, January 7th, 2005, after the dance, Josh walked this close to me. They're written right next to each other. This close to me. Taking advantage of the sitch, I acted out of urge and impulse as a female and breathed deeply to try and capture his lovely scent. It was like a natural high as it lasted only a few minutes, but I loved it. I doubt he or anyone else noticed. Later, Emma and I made our way up the path home and just out of sight, I turned back to look at Josh, but there was a giant tree in the way. Taking advantage of the sitch again, I yelled, I love you! I've shared my feelings for him, and he doesn't have to know. It's always better that way, for now anyway. <laughs> January 15th. Today All Day was a 24-hour project. It was a blast. I had Josh's script. After we performed, I sat beside Josh, and he said, wow, you did really good. And I was like, would you look at that? I'm shaking. <laughs> So he kind of put his arm around me for a sec. It was all worth it after that. I still love him as much as ever, and now I've got reasons to talk to him and obtain his email address. <laughs> We're on our way. January 30th. I went on MSN and talked to Josh. Conversations with him die fast. I keep them going for as long as I can, but Kessica La Point. He doesn't show much interest in me. I believe, I believe it's only proper to ignore vous him in order to get him to show some interest. If this does not work, it was not meant to be. January 31st, the next day. Well, that was easier than I thought. I was just about to complain to Anthony about the agony of waiting for Josh to talk to me when who says hey but Josh himself. I was ecstatic. I'm not going to say it's meant to be just yet. I'll wait a bit longer and play it cool. Glacial. <laughs> February 11th. The dance wasn't too great. Tiffany danced with Chris, Emma danced with Jeremy, and Melanie... Eric, Ben, Jordan, Brad, John, Andrew, Anthony, pretty much everyone except for Josh. I meant to ask him, I did, but I'm too stupid or shy. Man, I suck sometimes. But maybe it's a sign that I really just need to get to know him better. February 21st, after Italian class, I went home and talked to Josh on MSN. I love talking to him. Tonight we talked about how we express to someone that we like them. Not specifically, but like, if we do it, do we get it over with or we take our time? He said he takes his time. What does this mean? <laughs> February 24th, I went home after watching The O.C. with Emma. Marissa is a lesbian now. So strange, but I love it. And went on MSN. February 27th, Josh was online and I asked him if he had anything else he could send me by Sarah Sleen. And I quote his response, yup, much. Actually, I have a concert featuring Sarah Sleen for you this Friday at the best. Like, whoa. Stupid me, I said, 
for me, eh? And he said, and for anyone else who wants to go. <laughs> March 1st, what do I even want from him anyways? If I were to tell him I liked him and he said he liked me, what next? Would we go out? Do I even want to? Do I even know how to? I need to figure out if this crush is at all serious or if it's just a fetish. <laughs> March 28th, I am avoiding Josh on MSN because I hate talking to a wall. March 31st, I know he thinks it's weird that we talk on MSN but don't ever talk in person. I hereby will not talk to him on MSN until I can muster up some verbal words. April 3rd, I need to stop letting boys run my mind. Honestly, there must be a way out I've not yet found. <laughs> April 7th, slap me. Josh spoke to me in person, almost attempted to make conversation. April 21st, my MSN screen name today is Boyfriend 2.0. He's hot, he's cool, and he's still got that new boyfriend smell. I made a mental promise to myself last night not to talk to JH. He has to start the next five conversations with me. Today he starts with, you don't have to call me 2.0, I prefer Josh. Ugh, he makes everything miserable for me. No one can help me stop this crush, no one. I am totally alone with this. I need reasons to not like him and fast. Thank you. After the show, Melanie told me that when she was 16, she wasn't just confused about Josh, she was also confused about who she was. You know, I, I definitely felt a bit of pressure to kind of follow the patterns that my friends were, were going uh, through at the time. Um, they all had either uh, crushes or maybe boyfriends, that kind of thing. And even though that wasn't necessarily my whole truth, I definitely latched on to Josh and had a huge crush um, on him. Um, if any person that I ever had a crush on in my life at that time expressed any uh, reciprocation, um, my interest would disappear. And I, it took me a while to figure out why that was. Um, it turns out it's because I'm, you know, gay. Um, I did date women exclusively from basically university onward. And um, if I could go back and give myself any advice um, back at 16, it would be to, you know, embrace the fact that, uh, you know, bisexuality is not a phase. A lot of people regarded it that way at the time. And I remember my best uh, guy friend at the time, Anthony, was the first guy to come out as gay in our Catholic high school. And he told me first uh, that he was bi. And I told him, yeah, I think I might be bi too. Uh, but we both, you know, definitely became, you know, he's a gay man and I was a, a lesbian woman um, in our adult years. But if we had just, or I don't know about him, but if I had just um, embrace the fact that bisexuality is not a phase, and that might have saved me a lot of confusion in my, uh, in my formative years. Joining us on stage right now is Ryan. When Ryan was 11 years old, he was very, very excited to welcome the birth of his third sister. So Ryan wrote a one-page speech. <laughs> and we're going to hear that speech delivered tonight. Please welcome Ryan to our stage. All through that day, we all watched the clock, hour after hour, trying to amuse ourselves. 
play anything and everything there was to play, and watching TV late into the night. Then the second all of us had been waiting for, ring, ring, hello, uh-huh, woohoo! <laughs> my sister woke me up with that scream. Then she came rushing into my room and told me, it's a girl, it's a girl, Amy Lee Vandevalk had been born. Then I started to cry. <laughs> I had prayed so hard for it to be a boy that when I was told that it was a girl, it touched my feelings like a sledgehammer. <laughs> then I thought, she's my sister, so I'm gonna have to live with it. <laughs> I can always pray that this one is a tomboy. I also have a three-year-old sister. Now, if you have any imagination at all, you can figure out what a three-year-old would do if she saw a baby. Go crazy! <laughs> Tina, the three-year-old, is always huddled over Amy, and if you try to hold her, Tina takes a hairy canary. <laughs> but to conclusion of my speech, Amy, Amy isn't that bad after all. She'll only wake you up about 16 times a night and barf on you and your clothes and anything else. But if you're really lucky, she'll smile and laugh at you. <laughs> So our next reader, Caitlin, isn't going to read. Rather, she is going to sing an original song that she composed when she was 13 years old. This is a song entitled The Definition. Is that right? This is called The Definition. She self-described this as a Taylor Swift rip-off love song. This one is about the boy she was in love with at the time. Please welcome her to our stage as I fetch the music stand. I was listening to a lot of um, Taylor Swift and a lot of Avril Lavigne at the time. <laughs> you go walk out the door bringing friends of yours with you cause that's how it works between us two <laughs> and I'll try to give you clues so just walk away with your brown eyes and converse shoes <laughs> I've never been in love just once because I fall again every time I'm with you my head should get its timing right so I'm not stuck here singing songs, not kissing you goodnight. Your head, beautiful as it may be, should get itself together, start crawling back to me. My nerves are always multiplied. The first time that I noticed you, I swear I almost died. Your nerves or lack thereof, make me wonder if you notice you're my definition of love. <laughs> I 
You breathe and learn while I toss and turn. See you sleeping without a sigh, and I watch you from the corner of my eye. I'll try not to hurt. So just smile at me with your brown eyes and blue t-shirt. In my life, I've never said a funny line, but if I'm trying, you'll laugh every time. And my head should get its timing right, so I'm not stuck here singing songs, not kissing you goodnight. Your head, beautiful as it may be, should get itself together and start crawling back to me. My nerves are always multiplied. The first time that I noticed you, I swear I almost died. Your nerves, or lack thereof, make me wonder if you notice you're my definition of love. Thank you. Kayla Curry, ladies and gentlemen. Poetry is always popular at Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids, especially angsty teenage poetry. And our next reader, Victoria, shared two poems, both written when she was a teen. I asked Victoria, how do you feel reading these poems today? And she said, embarrassed. Please welcome Victoria (laughs) to our stage. Okay. June 13th, 1997, age 15. I hurt people. I hate to be hurt. Am I a hypocrite or am I human? I am sensitive. I hate sensitive people. Am I uncaring or am I human? I am self-centered. I hate self-centered people. Am I selfish or am I human? I am fake. I hate fake people. Am I twisted or am I human? I hate people. I hate not being loved. Am I excused? I am not human. (laughs) So this is one that I wrote when I was 16. (laughs) It's different. His soul revealed through his intense, throbbing music. His imagination peaks by way of his penetrating coffee eyes. (laughs) His creativity is violently flipped about with his naughty hair. His tenderness expressed by his pouty, seriously drawn lips. His individuality flows from his diaphragm and over those lips. His self, his self combines these perfections and creates my Johnny Lang. Thank you. (laughs) 
When Benjamin was in grade three, he wrote a short story all about a whale named Dale. And as you might have guessed, Benjamin called his story Dale the Whale. This book is for my cousin Dale, because he's my friend. (laughs) One morning, Dale the Whale was swimming when he saw a little boy drowning. So he went over to help. He took the boy to his house. The next day, the boy was better. (laughs) Hi, he said. My name is Sammy. What's yours? My name is Dale the Whale. You can take a ride on my back, but you'll need a diver's suit first. I'll go get one from my house, said Sammy. (laughs) But I don't have tanks. It's okay, said Dale. I can't breathe underwater either. They were gone a long time. They just got back in time for Sammy's dinner. What's for supper, Mom? Fresh whale meat, Sam. Your dad's getting it now. Just then, he got back. He said, I saw Sam on the way back from swimming. Swimming, Sam screamed. I didn't go swimming. Did you kill the whale? (laughs) Yes, he said. (laughs) I killed the whale. (laughs) Thank you. Benjamin wasn't the only reader at our Peterborough show to bring along some short, dark fiction. Our next reader, Stephen, also brought some short stories, which were also written in grade three and are also very dark. First, we'll hear a story about a stuntman called The Hanging Man, and then a follow-up story entitled The Ghostly Warrior. These promise to be dark. Please welcome Stephen to our stage. The Hanging Man. One day, a man named Wild Man Corby went to a fortune teller. The witch pulled up the Hanging Man card. Corby laughed. You old hag, I'm making $150,005 for my next stunt. Sure enough, the morning paper said, Wild Man Corby to leap Golden Bridge for $150,000. He jumped, millions watched. He came up out of the water below. I did it. Well, Corby did more stunts, one after the other. He was alive. A reporter asked if he'd quit. A million is chicken feed. Next, I'm going to get five million from my next stunt. I'm going to be a human cannonball over Devil's Canyon. Corby whispered to himself, I can only die by hanging. Wild Man Corby was in the cannon. At the fire. Boom! He was over the spot. He opened the chute and he went down. In the morning, on the obituary page, (laughs) the clipping said, 
Corby hanged when his shoot tangled in a tree. <laughs> Want your fortune told? <laughs> So after my poor teacher pulled me aside and asked me, could you please next time write something more normal? I said, okay. And I wrote The Ghostly Warrior. One day in European times, an American tried the horn. He blew the horn, and instead of a snake coming out, a bomb blew up the man. A skeleton was in the basket and was shot and fell apart. He was put back together again and he was put in a Nova Scotia museum. And when people came to see him, he murdered them. One day, a sword fell out of the Roman's hand and broke the glass case of the skeleton and he got loose. He went into the streets one thing was, he looked both ways and crossed the street. He went and ran toward the wax museum and tore off the instructor's head. He went to the wax chamber and he saw a wax dummy of him that was alive. And in brackets, and the skeleton who belonged to the Nova Scotia Museum's name is Barney. And the other skeleton is Frank. <laughs> Barney saw a club in the hand of a Viking. He took it out of his hand. He hit Frank in the head, but he didn't come apart. His head came off, but he just put it back on. Frank said, you cannot destroy me because I am made of wax. That gave Barney an idea. He got a torch <laughs> and melted him. I thought you said I couldn't kill you, <laughs> said Barney. I got an idea. So he went to the police department and he asked if he could be a hero. <laughs> Why, yes, said the officer. So he bought himself a yellow coat, sunglasses, belt, and a medium-sized sword. <laughs> Next, he went to the Hero Name Bureau and he got a name of Skeleton Rex. He got a hat, a gun. Next thing he got was a star. And then he went to rent a house. <laughs> and he made plans to get a job. As an architect. <laughs> he built himself a house, but he was still a hero. And he was so rich, he became a millionaire. And in brackets, he got married too. <laughs> One day, he was robbed. So he put his hero costume on and went after the robbers. He said, I will get out my sword. So the robbers got in their car. Skeleton pulled off two wheels of the car. The police arrived just then. Okay, you can go home and rest now, Skeleton. Thanks, Chief the end. Thank you very much. Uh, 
After the show, Stephen told me he's recently been in touch with his grade three teacher, Mrs. Darling, and she was very glad to learn that Stephen lost his interest in gruesome horror stories as he grew up. That is Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids. Our show was recorded live at the Market Hall Performing Arts Center in Peterborough, Ontario, and produced by Jenna Meisner. Our associate producer is Olivia Nashmi. Our music is by Poddington Bear and Lullatone. Our closing theme is Oh Dear Diary by Sloan. If all of this sounds like fun, why not be part of a live Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids event? We have a bunch of upcoming shows planned, and we may be headed to your neck of the woods. For all of the details, check out our website, grownups.fm. That's grownups.fm, or use the link in the episode notes on your device right now. I'm Dan Meisner. Thanks for listening. Trust that you people are smart enough and kind enough not to do this thing again. And remember, I'm counting on you.